I'm Rose Bentley, Group Director of Clients and Strategy at Propeller Group, and I was delighted to welcome Marianne Seacart on for a discussion regarding her new book, The Authority Gap, why women are still taken less seriously than men, and what we can all do about it. As somebody who was made a director, PR director many years ago, and then attended um, a client event up at the NEC and was asked by a relatively prominent MP if I was the entertainment for the evening. Um, the friction of, of how women are not taken seriously um, in many walks of life um, has continued to be a big issue and loom large um, for me. And um, obviously, I've always known that women don't get taken as seriously as men. Senior women in business, world leaders, nobody is actually exempt. But thanks to our special guest, we can now give it a label, the authority gap. Um, and hopefully giving it a label and identifying it, we can actually all start to do something about it. Please welcome um, Marianne Seacart, journalist, broadcaster, 20 years as assistant editor and columnist at The Times, BBC broadcaster, presenting such institutions as Start the Week, chairing the Brains Trust, regular panelist on Question Time, and uh, pre-COVID, but fairly recently, spent a year as visiting fellow of All Souls College Oxford, which given we first met 40 years ago as Oxford undergrads, um, feels like a nice symmetry. And now, of course, the author of the recently published Authority Gap, which identifies evidence that this gap exists, but also a manifesto for what we can do about it. So, Marianne, welcome. Um, I, I would love to, um, first of all, understand what, what really was the trigger for getting you to write this, because there may be many in the world out there, nobody in this room, I'm sure, but many who would say, well, what authority gap? Women um, are, there are more women leaders, there's more women leaders in business, in politics, um, but clearly that's not the case. Well, there are still many, uh, there are certainly many more women than there were in top jobs, but you still have 94 men and only six women, for instance, running the top FTSE 100 companies. Uh, in the cabinet, Boris Johnson was praised for promoting lots of women in his first cabinet. There were still three men for every one woman in his cabinet in a supposedly representative democracy. But the book isn't just about how many women get to the top. It's about how we are all treated in our everyday lives and particularly in our working lives. The extent to which we still assume that a man knows what he's talking about until he proves otherwise. Whereas for a woman, it's all too often the other way around you are assumed to be the entertainment for the night rather than the most senior person in the room. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me a story recently about how she was invited to a dinner to give a big sort of presentation about geopolitics. Um, she's a fantastically well-informed woman on the Middle East and South, South Asia and uh, sat next to this man at dinner who asked her whether she was just there with her husband. And she finally stood up to speak and he was aghast. He hadn't realized she was the keynote speaker. Um, but so it's this sort of default assumption that a woman on the whole is less expert than the man who she's sitting next to or work, working alongside. And, uh, and we just come across this behavior every day, don't we? We find that, you know, we get interrupted or talked over in meetings or our opinions get ignored. And then a man makes exactly the same point 10 minutes later and it's treated like the second coming. Uh, our expertise is challenged, we're underestimated, we're patronized. These are all manifestations of the authority gap and it happens even to women right at the top of their game. So you rightly said there are more women now in very senior positions, but I interviewed about 40 or 50 incredibly authoritative and senior women 
in the course of writing this book. And I deliberately chose them because I thought, well, if even they've come across the authority gap, then that's pretty good proof that it happens to much more junior women, to the whole of womankind, really. And even they had some really quite sort of jaw-dropping stories to tell. So, okay, one example I, I, I start the book with. Mary McAleese, she was president of Ireland and she was leading a delegation to the Vatican to meet the Pope, John Paul II. Very formal occasion. She leads her delegation into this grand audience room at the Vatican and the Pope comes in flanked by a cardinal to be introduced to her at the head of the delegation. He walks straight past her and sticks out his hand to her husband instead and says, wouldn't you prefer to be president of Ireland rather than married to the president of Ireland? before he'd even been introduced to her. So her husband knows better than to take the Pope's hand, the delegation completely stunned by this act of appalling rudeness. And so Mary McAleese grabs the Pope's hand, which is just hovering in midair, brings it back to herself and says, let me introduce myself. My name is Mary McAleese and I am the president of Ireland, elected by the people of Ireland, whether you like it or whether you don't. <laughs> I just thought that can even happen to an elected head of state boy, it's happening to the rest of us. That's extraordinary. I remember that. Um, I remember that story. And I think the Pope had, had tried to make light of it and said, oh, well, I, I heard you had a sense of humour. Um, and she said, exactly. You said it. Yeah. This isn't funny. <laughs> exactly. And, and I'm sure you've had this happen to you in the past. People, you know, men just saying, oh, I was only joking. And you think that really wasn't funny. And also they're then sort of putting it back on you as if somehow you're this humourless harridan when actually you're just quite rightly annoyed at being treated with a lack of respect. Well, I guess it's, yeah, form of gaslighting in a, in, in, in a different way. And, and actually sticking with, um, and women in politics, you've, you've talked to many women um, in, in your book. I, um, I think you, you mentioned about um, Amber Rudd and Ian Duncan Smith and this idea that there's, um, you know, there's more women in parliament, um, Theresa May um, as leader and then, and then uh, has got rid of. Um, and somehow that means that um, a woman can't follow as, as leader once one woman's been leader. It was when Theresa May was in trouble, but before a leadership election had actually been announced. And one of Amber Rudd's male colleagues came up to her and said, uh, just so you know, Amber, if there is a leadership contest, I'd really like to back you. And she thought, great, you know, that's one more to add to the list. And then he said, but I think we've had enough women for now. Goodness. I mean, can you imagine someone saying to, say, David Cameron after Michael Howard was standing down, oh, no, I think we've had enough men for now. Yes. You know, so one woman turns out not to be very good at her job and half of the rest of humankind is thereby disqualified from taking, you know, taking after her. And so I guess there's, there's always that um, thought that, and as many women have expressed, that in order to be taken seriously, they have to keep proving themselves or they have to be providing evidence. And it's, um, and it's much harder that the, the, the broader you get um, in, in the gender pool. I think you, you, you cite some um, workplace research, McKinsey and Lean In, so that you already only have 3% of black women in leadership, 19% in total. And in order to get in those um, positions of leadership, they sometimes, you know, there's an awful lot more proving of yourself to do. Mm, that's so right. So, you know, if it's bad enough being a white woman, it's a lot harder being a woman of colour, working class woman, disabled woman, you know, there's a lot of intersectionality here. And black women are twice as likely than as white women to say that they have to prove extra evidence of their competence. And also that people are surprised by their ability. 
and, and, and women in general are much more likely than men to say this, that they have to prove evidence of their competence, that their views get ignored in meetings, that they get talked over or interrupted. Uh, so there's already a lot of evidence for women as a whole, but it, the gap definitely widens if you're a woman of color. And then of course, the problem is that you could be completely brilliant. And if you do get appointed to a senior job, people will say, oh, she's just the diversity hire. So you really can't win. And of course, the other problem is that uh, racial stereotypes sometimes get overlaid on gender stereotypes. So, you know, suppose a black woman were annoyed about being interrupted at a meeting and said, actually, could you please let me finish? Suddenly she's turned into an angry black woman and a difficult black woman. Uh, and, and black women have to be incredibly careful not to be mischaracterized like this. Or indeed, sometimes Asian women are expected always to be very submissive and demure. And people are then surprised or horrified if they stand up for themselves. If they don't display confidence and assertiveness in the workplace, then they just get rolled over and no one takes them seriously at all and they're not respected. But if they do display as much confidence as men, so, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's women's fault. They should just lean in more. They should just be more assertive. But if we do show this amount of confidence and assertiveness, people recoil because we're going against their stereotype of how they think a, women, a woman ought to behave. And they start using adjectives about us such as, oh, she's quite abrasive or she's strident, bossy, overbearing, aggressive. You know, you've heard all these um, bitchy, ball breaking, even stern, controlling. You know, these are adjectives that are never used of men who display exactly the same character traits. So we're sort of damned if we do and damned if we don't. We're either not confident enough and disrespected or we are confident enough and then we're disliked because people find us abrasive or aggressive or, or strident. And actually those ball breaking, aggressive, they're not necessarily applied to men in authority or leadership as a criticism sometimes. It's, it's a sign of strength. Oh, <laughs> yes. It's, it's well, that's true. Actually, there was, a great, there, were, there was a great study done of um, evaluations in the tech industry and women were something like 13 times more likely to be called abrasive than men were. Uh, and much more likely to be called aggressive. And the, uh, and, uh, the only use of aggressive in a man's evaluation was that he was considered not aggressive enough, whereas for women, it was a criticism. And I just want to stay on that topic of, of, of men and women because there's roles, um, I mean, it's, it's uh, women can also be guilty of um, reinforcing that authority gap. It's, it's not just a question of um, men not taking women seriously. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. So women do it too. And, and this very much isn't a man bashing book because we all nurture these unconscious biases against women. And you may think it's odd if you're a woman, why would you be biased against your own gender? But it's called unconscious for a reason. We may not be consciously biased against other women, but we still all have these sneaky little stereotypes, which we have absorbed from very early childhood. We've probably seen our father going out to work more than our mother, perhaps earning more than our mother, perhaps having more authority at home than our mother. We've looked at the world around us and we've seen men disproportionately in charge, you know, having twice as many speaking parts in films as women and women are, tend to be there as a sex object or the help meet, whereas it's the men who are in charge and you know having the big adventures and all that sort of thing. Everything that we see in the world outside us reinforces this notion that male equals authority. And so we find it much easier uh, and more instinctive to associate male with authority. I actually looked up the definition of authority in order to, you know, to start, I was giving a talk about this at Oxford and I thought define your terms, you know. 
So I went online and I just Googled authority definition. First result that came up was the Oxford Online Dictionary. And every example of the use of the word authority had the same pronoun at the beginning. So there was, he had the natural authority of one who was used to being obeyed. He hit the ball with authority. He was an authority on the stock market. And, you know, sometimes your subject just comes up and slaps you in the face. I wasn't even looking for this. But didn't Margaret Thatcher have the natural authority of one who was used to being obeyed? Doesn't Serena Williams or indeed Emma Raducanu hit the ball with authority? Isn't Helena Morrissey an authority on the stock market? But we just naturally put together male and authority. And therefore, women also have this bias. And women also are probably more likely if they walk up to a man and a woman standing together to address the man first. Women are probably just as likely as men to underestimate a woman at first meeting her and then perhaps to be surprised when she turns out to be very clever or very expert. We all have this problem. Yeah. But we need to be aware of it and do something about it because it's actually very, it, it's unfair and it holds women back. Well, that's part of the, the issue, recognising and almost giving yourself a beat of two seconds before making that assumption can actually start to achieve a behaviour change. And by the same token, um, that there are, and I know many men who are joining us today are, would be um, fervent allies of women um, in all walks of life, in, in the workplace, in their families, out in the greater world. But what, um, how can men be um, more assertively um, allies for women in, in this and when we when we think about these behaviours that are, are, as you say, unconscious and therefore being perpetuated? Okay, well, I think men can also suffer from affinity bias as well as gender bias, which means, I mean, we all have this, that when we tend to prefer people who are like us. And so research shows that 70% of men will evaluate a man more highly than a woman for achieving exactly the same goals. So I think men have to be extra aware of their affinity bias. You know, if they are choosing, for instance, somebody more junior to mentor in their organization, are they automatically choosing someone who reminds them of themselves 20 years ago, i.e. a young man, probably a young white man, or could they perhaps deliberately choose a woman instead? Um, if uh, a man hears a woman being interrupted in a meeting, and this happens much more to women than it does to men, usually by men, the man could say, oh, hang on a minute, I just wanted to hear what Rose was saying there. Or, you know, if a woman makes a point in a meeting and nobody takes any notice, and then 10 minutes later, a man makes the same point and is fated for it, a male and I can say, oh, I'm so glad you agree with what Rose said earlier. It's that sort of thing. It's when you see that sort of behaviour, just, you don't have to call it out aggressively, but just make sure the person who does it knows that it's been noticed and make sure that the woman to whom it's happened is being affirmed. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that men can do, I think. And um, I think you, an interesting example of, um, because by the same token, when that, when that doesn't happen, um, women make a great point or even a huge finding um, and it's not acknowledged. Now you talk in the book, I think it was um, Gillian Tett, the Financial Times, um, wasn't she the first, the person that actually flagged the financial crisis and yet somehow, um, wasn't acknowledged and worse than wasn't acknowledged um, was made light of at a conference you were yeah. attending. Do you want to do you want to share? Yes, I was. A, I was a, yes, I was. I was at a big um, investment trust conference, and uh, a man on stage asked, "Why didn't the FT predict the global financial crisis?" 
And someone else said, well, actually, Gillian Tett did. It was, she, it's not just she noticed it, she predicted it. She said, this is going to happen. And he said, oh, yes, but she was too pretty for me to take seriously. <gasps> so I started, I started loud, boo, under my breath, which then spread around the audience, very gratifying. <laughs> but, you know, there's also very good research to, 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 to um, demonstrate this phenomenon, which we all come across as women. But, you know, you make this point and no one notices. And, and then when the man makes it, you think, well, maybe I wasn't articulate enough or eloquent enough, or maybe I wasn't confident enough or assertive enough. No, you were just too female. And there's a very good research study which put together a mixed sex group of participants ostensibly to decide a child custody case. And they deliberately chose that subject because it's actually quite stereotypically female. It wasn't quantum mechanics or something. And they were given lots of information about the family concerned. But a few individuals were given one piece of information that none of the rest of the group had. When that information was offered by a male participant, it was six times more likely to be included in the group's deliberations than when it was offered by a female participant. Exactly the same information, six times, not just one and a half times. That's how much harder it is for a woman to influence a group. And to influence a group of women and men it's not just men who resist female influence, it's women too. So there is a large um, mountain to climb to reduce that six times to, to one and a half. That's, that's quite extraordinary. Um, I just want to, to switch, uh, well not switch, but kind of turn to your own experience, um, your own work life, because obviously you've been um, in the media for many years and um, journalists, broadcasters in the media, you know, you kind of were looking to them to, to signal change, to report change, to push change. Um, do you feel that the industry has changed at all in terms of the way um, women uh, broadcasters, journalists are treated by their fellow male broadcast journalists or do you think there's still a, a big hill to climb there? It is a lot better than it was. And I do acknowledge all the way through the book, things are getting better but they're getting better slowly and we could really speed it up. So, you know, there are many more female editors of national newspapers than there used to be. The BBC has made great strides in trying to get as many women as men on screen, both as presenters and as experts and guests and pundits and that sort of thing. And that is a huge improvement. Newspapers haven't gone nearly as far on that. There's still a lot of sexism in the way women are treated in the media offices. Uh, yep, uh, women are often put onto what are called the sort of fluffy beats, you know, the feature writing and the health and beauty, even health and education, you know, as, as news stories are, are, are seen as sort of female beats. And it's much harder to get on in the world of, say, political journalism or writing about defence or business as a woman than it is as a man. Well, and actually, um, in newspapers, there's quite a lot of studies done on what percentage of experts are quoted in newspapers around the world, male and female, and women make up only about 20% of experts. And that is therefore giving a subliminal message that women are less expert and less authoritative than men. But actually, it's terribly easy to find the female experts. They're all there. You just have to go and look for them. And Ed Yong, who is a science writer at The Atlantic, and was very progressive and thought that he was asking equal numbers of men and women to contribute to his science articles, decided actually to count over the course of the year and discovered that he was using only 30% female scientists and 70% men, so more than twice as many men. 
So he decided to make it absolutely 50-50 for the year. And he said, it really wasn't hard. The women were all out there. I just wasn't calling them. Mm-hmm. And he said it took perhaps 15 more minutes for every piece to identify a female scientist who was just as expert as the male one, who had obviously come top of the Google search because other male journalists had asked, asked him for his opinion before. But you just have to make yourself do it. And then you have to, he, he said the most important thing is to keep counting because when you do this sort of thing, it's a bit like stretching a rubber band. And as soon as you let go, it just snaps back to its default position. So you have to make sure that you keep counting. Otherwise you'll think that you're, you're treating women equally, but you're not. Well, that, that's right. And I think you, you did count in, in one story I remember from your book when you were on, um, um, you were you were, uh, with Daniel Finkelstein and being interviewed by, well, you've named him in the book, yes. I'm name him, Andrew Neil. Um, and how, what was the ratio of questions he asked you to the ratio of questions he asked Daniel Finkelstein? And of course, you were both completely at the same stage in your careers um, at the time, weren't yes. you? I would say that we were we had equal authority. Uh, we were equally well informed. And in fact, we were colleagues at the Times and great friends and often chewed the political fat together. You know, we both knew about the same amount about politics and we were on the Daily Politics show. And it was on a Friday when the two pundits stay on for the entire show for the whole hour and uh, asked to comment on each of the six items during the course of the show. So you would have expected Andrew to have gone to Danny three times and me three times first and then, you know, switched around. Uh, four to two, I, I might have accepted. Five to one, he went to Danny every single time first, six, zero. And then he'd, of course, have to come to me. But then he'd go back to Danny for a follow up, but not to me. And I mean, that was really disgraceful, I thought. It was just completely blatant disrespect. No, and... Um... But he probably didn't realise he was doing it. And, you know, what I'm saying is a lot of the time we just don't notice unless we're aware. And what I'm asking is just for us to be more aware because it matters. It holds women back. And every little instance of the authority gap, all these things that I'm talking about, the interrupting and the ignoring and the underestimating, every individual instance may seem small, though irritating. But they roll up like compound interest over the course of a working life to create this huge gap in the end between male and female opportunity and achievement because the men get promoted much more quickly than women do their pay goes up faster than women do even if they start at the same level and have equal abilities and in fact i don't know whether you your mind if i talk about the chapter i wrote about trans people because right. i think this is such a good illustration and proof of the existence of the authority gap because i was talking about say a man and a woman who have equal ability and start at the same level But the trouble is that if the man gets promoted before the woman, the woman might easily think, I think there was sexism involved there, but equally he might just be better. I mean, it's fair enough, he might just be better and more deserving of promotion. Um, But what I found fascinating was talking to people who had lived as both a man and a woman and asking them what difference it made to the way they were treated. Because in those circumstances, they're exactly the same person with the same ability and intelligence and experience and personality and body of work. And therefore, the only thing that has changed, the only variable that has changed is their gender. So you can isolate the variable that matters. And I start with a story of two science professors at Stanford who, by coincidence, decided to transition in opposite directions at the same time. Ben Barris, who is a neuroscientist, started living as a man. And he said, I've had the thought a million times, I'm just taken more seriously now. 
my work is taken more seriously. The same damned work, as he put it, is taken more seriously now that people think that I'm a man. And someone was overheard, who didn't know his history, at the back of one of his seminars, saying, oh, Ben Barris gave a great seminar today, but then his work's so much better than his sister's, <laughs> i.e. himself. Mm. Um, and meanwhile, Joan Rothgarden, uh, who's an evolutionary biologist, uh, when she was living as a man, she said, I was just on this fantastic conveyor belt and I could see my career mapped out and I spoke and people listened and they took me seriously. I had a seat on the university Senate committee. Life was just really easy for me. Once I started living as a woman, all that started to fall away. And she said she experienced all the irritations that I've just been talking about, not being able to finish a sentence without being interrupted by a man, being underestimated, being ignored, being interrupted, all these things. And she said, well, to start with, I thought, well, if I'm gonna live as a woman, I'm darn well gonna be discriminated against like a woman. And then she said, well, the thrill of that has worn off, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and her conclusion was, men are assumed to be competent until proven otherwise, and women are assumed to be incompetent until proven otherwise. And what most shocked her was the way she was attacked personally once she started living as a woman in the way that she'd never been when she was seen as a man. So she said people would, you know, jab their finger at her and say, you haven't read the literature or you don't understand the statistics. She said, I was amazed because no one had ever done that to me before. One man even jumped up on stage when she was giving a talk and started yelling at her. So I just think this is very convincing testimony, isn't it? It's very convincing proof, actually that people just do treat you differently yeah. if you're male or female. And in fact, much bigger studies done by sociologists of trans men and women have found exactly this phenomenon. It's extraordinary. And I guess also um, just that, um, that unconscious bias, why so many women submit novels for publication with initials rather than their name as well, so that there's not that innate, you know, that innate yeah. um, I'm Gonna, gonna Can I just tell the story of Catherine Nichols? Oh, sure. So, sorry to interrupt, but I thought that was what you were leading to. So there was a woman I spoke to <clears throat> called Catherine Nichols, who was a writer and had decided to write a novel. And she had really honed it. She'd shown it to her writer friends and all said, it's good to go. You should start approaching agents. So she sent out the first three chapters and a synopsis to 50 agents under her own name, waited for the replies, waited waited, waited, and eventually they started trickling in all negative, apart from two who didn't offer to represent her, but just said, can you send me the full manuscript? And she was so dispirited, she conceived what she called my nutty plan. Guess what? She sent in exactly the same material, calling herself George instead, and she got 17 positive responses on the first day for exactly the same material, but under a male name. I very nearly called myself M.A. Seacart on the cover of this book, actually, because um, one of the depressing pieces of research, this was something I actually commissioned myself, original research, showed that men on average will read four books by a man for every one book by a woman, whereas we women will read roughly 50-50 books written by both genders. So it's really hard to cut through if you're a female writer because lots of men just don't even want to read you. It's not just that they're not according authority to what you're saying, I wasn't even reading you in the first place. No, and I remember years ago um, at Oxford when we launched Oxford English Unlimited, which was an attempt to get more women writers onto the Oxford syllabus. 
Um, and the amount of resistance and, patri and, and patronizing comments um, for us to do that. But actually there's no shortage um, of women authors. It's mm -hmm. just that they're not discovering them. And when, um, yeah. you know, and, um, and, I, and I guess also just to, to sort of bring this across to um, work and to our industry where of course, many of us working in, in marketing, in media, in tech, um, and a lot of um, women that are on this call that we work with who are um, having these discussions in their organizations. Can we talk a little bit about the workplace and some of that um, unconscious bias behavior that, that, that comes into play? Some of the more microaggressions, the kind of mum syndrome about women bosses. What, um, is it simply a question of that we have to recognize those behaviors and stop them or call them out? Um, what, what, what can you do to kind of break that cycle? It can be quite difficult for women who are running teams who are finding perhaps that, that male dominated teams are not, are just not according them the same respect as you know, a mixed gender team or, or um, a female team. It's so hard, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> buy a copy of the book and put it on your manager's desk. <laughs> would be one way of doing it. Um, I think getting allies is the easiest, particularly if you're quite a junior female in it, and, and it's more senior men who are doing it to you. Uh, it's very difficult because if you do call it out, either you get gaslighted and they say, no, 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 we never meant that. You're, 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 you're being chippy or oversensitive or neurotic. Uh, so that quite often happens to women or you're being difficult and, and they don't like being challenged by you. So the best thing is if you can if you can conscript an ally, ideally, sadly, a male ally, because he will have more weight with the other men, to do the sort of thing I talked about earlier, you know, to say, actually, I don't think Rose had her fair, fair say there, you know, let's listen to what she's got to say, that sort of thing. Uh, if you can have, if, if this sort of thing is happening at meetings, have a word with the chair afterwards and say, you know, I don't think I got a fair shout there and it would be great if you could stand up for me next time. Or maybe if you could have a quiet word, with a man who interrupted me or patronized me or, or challenged my expertise unfairly. Um, but what you really need is for men at the top of organizations to want the organization's culture to change. Because if it's a male leader saying, this has got to change and I want all the men in this organization and the women, but I want the men in particular to think about the sort of behavior that they might not be intending to do, but which in practice they are doing, which is holding back their female colleagues that's what's going to change things because men being judged by other men and called out by other men, I think, sadly, I mean, this is sort of QED for what I'm saying in my book, isn't it? That they're more likely to be influenced by other men than they are by women. It has to come from the top. And, um, and I suppose, because not every, you know, it's always assumed that, and this is, uh, and this is probably making, um, a male judgment, but not, not everyone's an extrovert. So um, not everybody is going to um, necessarily have a personality that means they're going to, to push themselves. What are, what are some of the things that we can do if we're not, if we're not extrovert um, that can kind of get our voices heard more? And this is very difficult. I'm, I'm interested that you're talking about pushing yourselves because men are allowed to self-promote in organizations and people will believe them and they will take that into account when it comes to, you know, hiring and promotion and everything. If a man says he's great at his job, women are not allowed to self-promote. So even if women are extrovert and would happily say, oh, you know, um, I'm really good at what I do and these are my skills. 
they get punished for doing so. They get disliked in the same way that they get disliked if they're confident or assertive. So it's not even just a question of being extrovert and introvert. All women get punished for self-promoting. And therefore, I think when you are making hiring or promotion decisions, it's terribly important not to take people at their word because a man on average, men will overestimate their talents and oversell them to you. Whereas women have been taught, you know, from a very early age to be self-deprecating and to be, and to underestimate their talents and to be modest. So if you take a man at his word and believe him, you will think he's better than he is on average, not all men, but on average. If you take a woman at her word, you will think she's worse than she is. And so I think you need to understand that dynamic and actually look objectively at what they've achieved, not at what they say they've achieved. And in fact, even at a job interview, if you ask, into, if you ask candidates for the job, tell me what you're proudest of doing in your, in, in your working life. That really disadvantages a woman because she knows that she's not actually really allowed to say what she's really good at in the way that a man is. And so you've got to be aware of these different ways in which men and women are treated, I think, in order to be able to treat them fairly. Treating them the same isn't necessarily treating them fairly because of all these biases. So how, so how does that start with, um, you know, when you're from the get-go, because you say this is something that can be um, effectively learned as parents, you know, what, what can we do to really get that started? And then of course, as employers, what, what can we do right from the get-go? Um, you know, we talk about things like um, uh, blind CVs. What, what are some mm. of the things that we can do throughout, throughout our life um, in order to start to change those behaviours? Okay, well, as parents, there's a lot we can do. First and most important thing is to make sure if we're in a straight relationship that we have equal authority in the home so that people, the children don't see the father, you know, lording it over the mother. Uh, and the, the father ought to have equal respect for the mother's career if that's what she wants as well, and not assume that she has to do, you know, vast majority of the unpaid work at home. And in fact, um, fathers who have, uh, sorry, couples who have more egalitarian way of sharing out the unpaid work and the childcare actually produce daughters who are more ambitious for themselves and are more likely to go into non-stereotypical careers. And they also produce boys who are much less likely to have stereotypically masculine views and are less likely to be violent in teenagehood. Um, I mean, and in fact, in more egalitarian couples, the children tend to do better at school and have fewer behavioral difficulties and have a better relationship with the father. And guess what? Not only are the mothers happier and healthier and the children happier and healthier, but so are the fathers. So you might think that gender equality is like a seesaw in which as women gain, men lose. Actually, no, it's win-win. It's a positive sum game. So men in these relationships, on average, say that they are twice as satisfied with their lives. Uh, the research shows they're half as likely to get depressed, much less likely to get divorced. Uh, they drink less, they smoke less, they take fewer drugs, they sleep better at night. And here's the complete clincher, they get more frequent and better sex. <laughs> so it's very much in men's interest at home to have a more equal relationship and to role model that for their children. And interestingly, of, the, of these very powerful women whom I talked to for the book, the one common thread, because I asked them all about their childhood was, they said, my father believed in me. And I found that fascinating, not just their mother, but their father. It was as if he gave them license to compete in a male world. So I think fathers of daughters can do a lot to improve their confidence 
and, and their sense that they can compete equally with boys because they come up against a lot of sexism at school. So it's really important to try and counter that. And I think to bring up boys to respect girls equally and give boys the moral courage to call out other boys when they're being sexist. Hard to do, but I think it's really important. And, you know, racism terribly seriously at school. I don't think they take sexism nearly as seriously. And yet, you know, if, if someone were to say to a boy or a girl, that's racist, if you speak like that, they would be horrified. So, you know, why, why are they not as horrified to be called out for being sexist? I think we need to work on that. Into, yeah. onto, the work, onto the workplace. Um, well, I've talked quite a lot about what we can do as allies. I think blind CVs are a very good idea because women are 30% less likely to be called to interviews for jobs, even when they're identically qualified um, to a man, to a male candidate. So I think, of course, you can't do blind interviews, sadly, but at least if you've got as many women as men on the candidates list, that really helps. Having only one woman, by the way, makes it incredibly unlikely she'll be appointed because subliminally we get the message that men are much better than, you know, here are four great men and only one woman, therefore men are on average are four times better. So you need more than one woman on the candidate list. You also need more than one woman on the interviewing panel, on the selection panel, because if you have only one woman, bizarrely, the research shows that makes women less likely to be hired because the men think, oh, we don't have to worry about the diversity side of things, the woman's gonna do that. And the woman thinks I mustn't um, promote the female candidate because the men will think I'm being nepotistic. So actually you really want to have even numbers of men and women on the selection panels too. And then you, I'm afraid you have to be very rigorous and draw up a very rigorous job spec and person spec and match the candidates rigorously against that. And don't say, oh, I really liked him or I think he'd fit in well. Any of these sort of intuitive hunch-like uh, decision-making processes will always tend to favour men, I'm afraid. And therefore you have to say, no, I'm sorry, I'm, you know, I'm, I may, we may like him, but actually she's better qualified than he is. And also, if we start thinking of the woman at interview, oh, I don't like the way she boasted about herself, or I thought she was a bit abrasive, or she was a bit strident, start asking yourself, well, is that perhaps telling me more about me and my biases than it is about her? No, very, that's, you know, very good point. And, and also, sometimes that can be an unconscious bias just, um, and particularly in our society here um, in the UK, um, kind of class and regional, regionality and accents and people making um, kind of snap decisions and an unconscious bias because of the sound of someone's voice or the way in which they express themselves. And this has been a, a really fascinating discussion and as I say not not least annoying when you when you talk about some of the stories but what say one thing as men or women one thing we could action straight away and one thing we could stop doing straight away in order to make some change here stop mistaking confidence for competence I think would be the one thing we could action it is, we do this so often in life and confidence is not the same as competence and men on average are likely to be more confident than women, partly because they don't come up against the sort of behavior I've been describing for the last three quarters of an hour nearly as much as we do. And partly because they've been socialized from birth. Boys are just brought up to be more confident than girls on average. So don't mistake confidence for competence. Don't believe a woman when she says, oh, I'm not sure I'm qualified to apply for this job. 
and don't believe a man when he says, oh, I could easily do this job when in fact he's only got three of the you know, eight skills you want. Uh, so that's the one thing you could uh, action. Really think about the amount of conversational time you, t- you use up in a meeting and make sure it's proportionate, and particularly if you're a man. Stop doing what I call conversational manspreading, <laughs> uh, which is just sort of squeezing women out of the conversation and draw women into the conversation if they're being a bit quieter than the men. We hope you enjoyed that insightful discussion. I'd like to thank Marianne once again for coming on and sharing her valuable insights with us. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to follow our socials to stay in the loop on our upcoming content.